If you'd open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 29 through 32 this morning. I'd like to begin with a quote from John Stott, and I'm going to leave out the last word and see if you can fill in the blank. He said, cows can moo, dogs bark, donkeys bray, pigs grunt, lambs bleat, lions roar, monkeys squeal, and birds sing, but only human beings can what? Only human beings can speak. God is a speaking God. And we are made in the image of God. So one of the things that, that sets us apart as humans created in God's image is that we talk. Now maybe you have someone in your life who you wish would speak a lot less. Or maybe a lot more. It's commonly claimed that on any given day, women speak an average of 20,000 words and men speak 7,000 words, which would explain why after preaching on a Sunday morning, I don't always have a whole lot left to say for the rest of the day. But the problem with that statistic, besides the fact that it reinforces unhelpful gender stereotypes, is that it's simply not true. There have been lots of scientific studies done that have debunked this, this urban myth that, that women speak more words than men. And in fact, uh, it depends largely on the social setting. There are some social settings where men speak a whole lot more than women. And on average, scientists have found that human beings, both men and women, tend to speak around 16,000 words a day. That's a lot of words for which we're going to have to be accountable to God. Our words can be rotten and our words can be redemptive. And there's a whole lot at stake in how we speak. So let's read God's word this morning. and Let's let his word address the matter of our words, our speech, as we read Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 29. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice and be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will abide forever. Now, as with all the commands in this section here in Ephesians chapter 4, we're being told there's something that we need to put off, then there's something we need to put on, and then there's a powerful motivation given for why we need to do that. So the first thing is put off rotten speech. The CSB puts it like this. No foul language should come from your mouth. The NIV says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. The ESV, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. There's a word here that, that is used to describe rotting fish or rotten fruit. I love to go to the grocery store and get fresh berries. 
And, and sometimes I'll bring that carton home with all those plump, juicy red raspberries in it. And I'll want to just take a whole handful and put them in my mouth without checking and noticing that one of them is going bad. And you know what happens. Just one piece of rotten fruit spoils the whole taste in your mouth. And I don't want to even talk about eating rotten fish. There's a U.S. president who actually died from eating cherries and milk on the 4th of July. He died five days later, just 16 months into his term, President Zachary Taylor. Back in July, Kate and I were away from our home for a few days, and it was hot outside. And because we were away, we didn't have our air conditioner turned down very low. So when we got home, the house was hot, the weather outside was hot. And the minute we opened the door, it, this, the stench just took my breath away. Can you imagine what it was that, that we forgot to do before we left? Or, or maybe I should say what I forgot to do before we left for vacation. We forgot to empty the garbage. And because we had had our adult kids visiting, there was a lot of food rotting in that garbage. And, and it took all we could muster to just get the air conditioning going, spraying air freshener all over, emptying out the garbage. And it was hours before that stench went away. Well, this verse is a strong reminder to you and to me that we need to empty the garbage of our hearts through re repentance and faith. We need to get rid of the garbage that's in our hearts because if we don't, it's going to come spewing out of our mouths and it's going to do damage and it's going to leave a lingering scent that's going to be hard to eliminate. And by the way, all that we're going to talk about today applies not just to our verbal speech, but also to our online speech. If we're not supposed to let words travel out of our mouths or off our keyboards onto the screen, we're going to have to deal with our hearts because what comes out of our mouths reveals what's in our hearts. And whatever is in your heart is eventually going to come out of your mouth. Jesus put it like this in Matthew chapter 12. He said, brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. I tell you, that on the day of judgment, people will have to give account for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted, and by your words, you will be condemned. That's sobering, isn't it? So if you, if you speak God's name carelessly, just flippantly saying things like, oh my God, What's that revealing about what's going on in your heart? It's revealing that there's a lack of reverence, a proper esteem for God and his name in your heart. If you speak flippantly about things like hell or damnation, what you're revealing is that in your heart, you really don't take Jesus' sober warnings about the dreadful reality of hell seriously. If you speak carelessly and vulgarly about sexual things, what you're revealing is that in your heart, you're allowing a degrading and abusive view of sexuality to fester there. You're not viewing sexuality as a holy and beautiful gift from God. 
And what about what we see in verse 31? If shouting and slander and malicious words are coming out of your mouth, why is that? It's because you have bitterness and anger and rage in your heart. In fact, sometimes we don't even realize that we're angry or realize how angry we really are until we listen to what's coming out of our mouths. And and when we hear what's coming out of our mouths, we realize there's a lot of anger going on inside my heart. Our speech gives vent to this toxic cauldron that's raging within our hearts. So think about it like this. If you were a first responder, if you were someone working in the medical field with with people who were uh, infected with a highly contagious disease, you'd have to wear your medical scrubs, you'd have to wear your gloves, and before you go home at night, you'd have to strip off those medical gowns and those gloves and throw them into the special garbage where it's going to be taken to the incinerator so that you don't come home in clothes that are going to contaminate and corrupt those whom you love. And that's what the Apostle Paul is telling us in this passage. There are certain types of speech that need to be stripped off. They need to be thrown into the fire of God's purifying judgment so that we don't corrupt and contaminate those who hear us. And the kind of foul speech that the Holy Spirit especially has in mind here is the kind of speech that rips apart the unity of the body of Christ. We've been seeing in this this whole book of Ephesians that the Holy Spirit is hard at work building up a body of believers and that he dwells in our midst and that he has created a unity between believers and he wants us to be eager to maintain and preserve that unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul is warning us here against the kind of corrupting speech that wages war against the unity that the Spirit of God is so zealous for us to maintain. And what this means is we not only need to be vigilant about not allowing corrupting speech to come from our mouths or from our keyboards, we also need to be vigilant about not listening to such speech. We need to take heed to what Proverbs 17 verse 4 says. It says, a wicked person listens to malicious talk. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. Ray Orland comments on this verse. He says, we lie to ourselves that we are not involved because we are only listening. But listeners are involved. Be careful what you listen to. A person can become a garbage collector. Someone in the group becomes the one to whom disgruntled people go because that person will listen and sympathize and be a shoulder to cry on and a rallying point for complaints and a hero to those with hurt feelings. And that listener becomes a bigger problem in the group than the talkers. So God is commanding us here to strip off corrupting speech from our tongues and to plug our ears to such speech. And he's calling us to make Jesus Christ the governor of our words. He's not just saying here, make sure that you talk nicely and that you be polite, and that you avoid swear words. No, he's saying, I want you to become like Jesus in the way you speak. So this is a command that none of us can obey without the gospel. What does it say in verse 23? We need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. 
in verse 24, we need to put on the new self. And, and what is the new self? It's a new creation of God. It's, it's the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. And if you're a Christian, that's what's happened to you. You've become a new creation by, of God. So you have the power now through the spirit of Jesus who dwells in you to now start to cultivate a whole new pattern of speaking. You can become more and more like Jesus whose words are full of grace and truth. That brings us to the second point this morning. We need to put off rotten speech and we need to put on redemptive speech. Now, God has given us two natural gates in our physiology to help us with this. He's put two gates in your mouth, your teeth and your lips, both of which are designed to help you guard your tongue. In order for words to get out of your mouth, they've got to go through your teeth and your lips. And this verse gives us three checkpoints, three checkpoints that that stand at the door of our teeth and our lips that that we need to pass through before the words should come out of our mouths or before we let the words pass from our fingers onto our keyboard and press send. So as we're thinking about speaking someone, we come up speaking something, we come up to the first checkpoint and the officer at that checkpoint has a question for us. And here's the question. Will your words be helpful? Is what you're about to say going to be helpful? Is it good for building up? You see that in the second half of verse 29. We should only speak what is good for building up. And remember, in in Ephesians chapter 2, this is how God views his church. It's his building And that God is joining us together in this building to be a holy temple in which the spirit dwells. This is what God is doing. He's building us up together. And and we're being called here to use our energies to support God's work, not to tear down God's work. We've been seeing the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4, that the reason the Holy Spirit gives gifts to the body is is so that we can build up the body. And that in everything we do and speak, we're supposed to be thinking about how to build the body up in love. So God is so eager that we would share in this passion that he has for his body to be built up. And he wants us to make this our aim in our speech. He wants us to be asking, is this going to be helpful? Will these words build up the person who hears it? Now, there are some things that we could say that are true, but they're not helpful. Not everything that's true is helpful to be spoken. If our words, for instance, are not bathed in love, they may be true, but they won't be helpful. One of the ways you can test whether or not your words are good for building up is to ask yourself the question, will the person to whom I'm speaking experience the love of God in Christ through the words that I'm about to speak? Will they feel loved by what I'm going to say? Or will what I'm saying about another person be loving toward that person? Now, that doesn't mean that everything we should say needs to be nice or easy. Sometimes we need to say hard things. Helpful is different from nice or easy. What does Proverbs say? The the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. 
But when we need to say hard things, we should be especially careful not to say them in a hard way. The need to say hard things is never an excuse to ignore verse 32, which says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. So let's be really clear about this. If your words are not kind, they are not helpful. If your heart is not tender when you speak them, you're not going to be a helpful messenger. If your words are coming from a heart that is hurt and offended and unwilling to forgive, then you need to deal with your own heart before you speak. And how do you deal with your own heart? Well, you fill up your heart with the good news of how God in Christ has forgiven you. This this has got to be working and operative in our hearts before we talk to one another about the ways that we've been hurt or offended by one another. We have to be freshly amazed at the grace that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. How does God speak to us who are in Christ? Well, God is never harsh in the way he speaks to his people. He tells us hard things for sure, but he never does it in a harsh way. He never speaks to us out of a desire to hurt us. Sometimes God's words do hurt us, but he always speaks in order that if his words hurt, we will ultimately be healed through those words. God never talks behind our backs. God always speaks directly to us as his people. He, he deals with us in what we need to hear. He has hard things to sure, say, he, he has hard things to say for sure. But everything he says is designed to build us up. It's not designed to tear us down. And whenever God speaks to us, his heart is always tender toward us in what he says. So that's the first checkpoint. Are my words going to be helpful? So now you get through that checkpoint and you come up to the next one. There's an officer standing there. And the question she has for you is, will your words be timely? There's an important phrase here that speaks about the need of the person who's going to hear it. Uh, The ESV says that our words should be as fits the occasion. Or the NIV says, according to their needs. Someone has wisely said this, the only difference between salad and garbage is timing. Think about that. Sometimes there's something that's true and helpful, but it's not the right time to say it. It doesn't fit the occasion. It won't meet the need of the moment. The person won't be in a good position to hear and to receive and to appreciate what's being said. So what do you do in such a situation? You wait. And you pray that God will give you wisdom to know the right time to speak those words. There's some great Proverbs about this. Let me put a few of them on the screen. Proverbs 15, verse 23 says, To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. So when a word is matched to the occasion, it's shaped to meet the need of the person who hears it. It's such a good gift when it's a timely word. Proverbs 10, verse 32 says, The lips of the righteous know what is fitting. 
And then it says in Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. So this takes some skill. This, this takes some craftsmanship to learn how to speak words that are timely, words that fit the need, that meet the occasion. Sometimes that means let your words be few. The author George Eliot wrote, Blessed is the man who, having nothing to say, abstains from giving wordy evidence of the fact. <laughs> Better to keep your mouth shut. Can you think of an example in Scripture where true words were spoken, but they weren't timely? I think of Job and his three friends. When Job was suffering, his friends had all kinds of truisms to say to Job, but they weren't timely. And the words of Job's friends ended up doing more harm than good than they did to Job. So we've got to go through these two gates. Are my words helpful? And secondly, are my words timely? But there's still a third gate, a third checkpoint. And at this checkpoint stands the Lord Jesus himself. And Jesus has a question for us. Will your words give grace to those who hear them? Now, this is a distinctly Christian standard for speech, that our words should be grace-giving words. I mean, you could not be a Christian and learn how to speak words that are helpful and words that are timely. But if you don't know Jesus, you can't do this third thing. You can't, you can't be someone who speaks words that give grace, grace from God to those who hear them. It's, this is radical here. Paul's not just telling us that we need to clean up our speech. He's not even just telling us that we need to be wise in how we speak. We do need to be that, but, but he's taking our speech to a whole new level here. And he's saying, now that we are a new creation in Christ, our aim should be to speak like Jesus speaks. The issue, says John Piper, is not whether our mouth can avoid gross language. The issue is whether our mouth is a means of grace. Is my mouth a means of grace to those who hear? And the way to become a grace giver in your speech is to get to know better the one who is the giver of all grace, to dwell closely with Jesus, to listen to his words, to get to know him so that your character and your speech is more and more conformed to his likeness. John Newton once wrote this to a friend, to know Jesus is the shortest description of true grace. To know him better is the surest mark of growth in grace. To know him perfectly is eternal life. So the surest test of our speech is to ask, does my mouth display the grace of God? Do my words help people move one step closer to Jesus who is full of grace and truth? Is my mouth a magnet drawing people closer to Jesus. That's what God wants for us. And if our speech is going to be filled with grace and truth, we need to be continually being filled up with the grace and truth that is in Jesus ourselves. So I want to just pause here for a moment and ask, is there anyone who's not feeling like you need a little repentance right now? Is there anyone who's not feeling convicted of sins of speech? I know I am. 
Even in the past 24 hours, I was reminded of something I said that I really shouldn't have said. It was not helpful. And it reminded me of a, of a class that some of us took some 20 years ago. The Havens were in it. Uh, Kate did it with me. It was called Sonship. And it was about growing in our awareness of being adopted sons and daughters of God. And, and the class was all about running away from self-righteousness and embracing the righteousness that we have through faith in Christ. And so one of the first assignments they gave us to, to help us do this was called the tongue assignment. Because here's something that happens. We can easily get so smug. We can feel so good about ourselves. And when you feel good about yourself, when you think you're really righteous, oh, the things that, that can come off our tongues when you're feeling self-righteous are scathing to others. So they gave us this, this simple little assignment. They said, here are five laws that you need to obey. And each law had something you need to put off of your tongue and something you need to put on in your speech. And you need to obey these five laws consistently for seven days in a row. And here were the five laws. Law number one, do not gossip. Do not say anything negative about anyone. Do not confess their sins. Do not mention your frustrations or irritations about anyone. Anyone. <laughs> Rather, here's the put on, do speak well of others. Law number one. Law number two. Do not complain about anything, but do give thanks in all things. Law number three. Do not blame shift or make excuses at all for anything, but do own your mistakes and confess your sins. Not only the outward sin, but also the inward heart motive. Law number four, do not defend yourself, but do acknowledge where the critique is accurate. And law number five, do not boast about anything in yourself, but do boast in your weakness and need. Put off, put on. Now, does anyone think that that sounds easy? To just obey those five simple laws seven days in a row? Try it. Try it for one day. And I'll guarantee you that this will bring you to a place of humility before the cross of Jesus. You will quickly recognize that what James says is true, that the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison and no one can tame the tongue. We need gospel grace from God in order to obey these kinds of commandments. But that's exactly where God wants us to be. He wants us to be humbled before the cross of Christ because when we're humbled before the cross of Christ for even our sins of speech and we're recognizing how gracious and kind and forgiving God has been to us in Christ, that's going to start to transform the way we speak to others. When your heart is tasting the goodness of God's forgiveness in Christ, the grace that you're tasting is going to be on your breath and in your words. It's impossible to have a heart that is filled with grace and have a mouth that is filled with garbage. Those two can't go together. So we've seen here what we need to put off. We need to put off the rotten speech that comes from a heart that's filled with bitterness and rage and anger. 
And we've also seen that we need to put on the redemptive speech that comes from a heart that's being filled up with God's grace toward us in Jesus. And I want to conclude with one more question this morning, and that is, why does this matter so much? Why does this matter? And the answer that Paul the Apostle gives us in this passage is stunning. And it has the power to transform the way we speak. Now, you could imagine Paul saying, it matters how you speak because your words can do great damage to other people. And that would be true. There is one whose reckless words are like sword thrusts, the proverb says. Words can do great damage. And you could also imagine Paul saying, it really matters how you speak because your words can mar the witness of Christ in the world. If the church is filled with bitterness and rage and anger and slander and gossip and malicious talk, we won't be very good imitators of God in Christ as we're being called to be in chapter 5, verse 1. We're called to walk in love in chapter 5, verse 2, and to exemplify through our lives the kind of sacrificial love that Jesus had. So if we, we speak in ways that are rotten and filthy, it's going to damage our witness. That's a motive that we need to be mindful of. You could also imagine the Apostle Paul saying, don't sin in your speech because when you do, it can invite the devil's work. And he actually does say that in verse 27. In the, in the context of sinful anger, he says, and don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't give him a foothold. He wants us to understand that, that spiritual warfare is not just some esoteric thing that's, that's happening in, in really strange ways. It's actually going on every single day in our daily relationships. And, and we experience spiritual warfare in the, the attitudes that we have toward one another and the way we speak toward one another. So all of these motives are really good motives to put off rotten speech and to put on redemptive speech. But what I want you to notice is that the immediate motive Paul gives for why we should put on redemptive speech is something that we probably don't think often enough about. It's in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's the immediate motive that Paul wants us to be thinking about the most when it comes to our speech. That we would not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now that means that the Holy Spirit is a person. Only a person can be grieved. Facebook or Twitter can ban you from posting if your, comment, if your content is deemed offensive. But you can't grieve Facebook or Twitter. You can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He is a divine person. He is holy. And speech that's rotten and corrupt and unwholesome grieves him. And notice that it doesn't say, don't irritate the Holy Spirit of God or don't annoy the Holy Spirit of God. It, it's more personal than that. It's more near to the heart than that. To grieve someone is to cause hurt, to cause pain, to cause distress. And Paul is saying to believers here, we can actually cause hurt 
We can cause pain and distress to the heart of the Holy Spirit by the way we speak. And we should be very earnest to not want to do that. This means that the Holy Spirit is near to us. Sometimes I can't hear everything that Kate is saying to me. I have to get closer so I can hear her words. But the Holy Spirit is close enough to us that he can hear every single word we speak, even those words that are under our breath. He's personally present. He's sovereignly involved in every detail of a believer's life. It must have been a couple decades ago that I read something from A.W. Tozer, and it's never left my mind since. He said this, Just as our souls permeate our bodies, and just as the air fills all space around the earth, so the blessed Holy Spirit is here. He is nearer to us than our own bodies and our breath. That struck me. I've never forgotten that. The Holy Spirit is nearer to me than my own body and my breath. And when he wants, when, when, when I wake up in the morning, he wants me to open my heart to him, to ask him to teach me as I read God's word, to ask him to shine the light of Christ into my heart. He wants me to ask him to help me fight the good fight against sin and temptation so that I can, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. The Holy Spirit is active in my life to assure me of the Father's adopting love so that in my heart there's this cry that goes forth, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit helps me when I don't know what to pray for and he intercedes for me with groanings too deep for words. He is nearer to God's people. He is nearer to us than our own bodies and our own breath and he cares deeply about how we speak. Not only is he near, but he also dearly loves us. That's another thing about grief. You can only experience grief in the presence of love. Someone that you don't dearly love might annoy you. They might anger you. But to really grieve you, it has to be someone that you love. Tozer put it like this. Imagine that you get a phone call from the police. They tell you there's a terrible crime that's been committed. And you need to come to the police department to help identify the suspects. So you quickly go to the department. They bring you into a back room and open the door. And there before you are two young men. One of them is a friend of your son. The other is your son. When you see your, friend, your son's friend, you're going to feel some disappointment, maybe some anger. But when you see your son, you're going to feel not only disappointment, not only anger, but deep grief because you love him so, because you've raised him, you've prayed for him, you've nurtured him. Because of your love, you feel grief. Anger is a repellent, but grief is a different kind of anger. Spurgeon said this, grief is a sweet combination of anger and love. It is anger with all the bitterness removed. Anger wishes ill upon a person as a punishment for his sins. Grief mourns over the ill 
of sin itself. So do you see how God is motivating us to deal with our speech here? He's motivating us by melting our hearts with his love for us. By showing us how near he is to us, so near that he hears every word we speak, and by promising he will never leave us. There have been times with my dear wife when I've blown it so badly in something I've said, and I've realized how much I've hurt her, and I've wondered, how could she go on loving me after I said such a thing? And then when I experience her forgiveness and when I'm reassured of the fact that she's not going anywhere and she still loves me, it makes me all the more earnest not to want to hurt her with my speech. And that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to us here. He's saying, I I have sealed you for the day of redemption. I'm going to make sure that the work that God has started in you, he will complete. I'm not going anywhere. When the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, he comes to stay for good. If you're in Christ, you've already been redeemed. It says in chapter 1 that we've experienced redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses through the blood of Jesus. But if you're in Christ, you're also waiting for the day of redemption when everything in the universe is going to match the reality of who we are in Christ right now. There's not going to be anything to provoke bitterness, anger, rage, clamor, all the mess that sin has made, will be restored and made beautiful in a new creation. And the Holy Spirit who loves you, who listens to you when you speak, is patiently at work in your life to change your heart and to transform your tongue so that one day, everything you say is going to sound just like Jesus. Our speech is going to mimic the grace and truth that is in Jesus Christ perfectly. The Holy Spirit has sealed us for that day of redemption. He has guaranteed that we're going to experience the fullness of our salvation in Christ. And Paul is saying that should encourage you. That should motivate you to want to bring joy, not grief, to the heart of the Holy Spirit who loves you so dearly. That's God's word for us this morning. May we take it to heart and be transformed by it. Amen.